0: Welcome, everybody, uh, to the Hayek Auditorium. Everybody watching online or following on Twitter using hashtag CatoCEF. If you are on Twitter and you want to comment, if you want to ask questions, uh, feel free to do that on hashtag CatoCEF. We will be watching that uh, up here at the table, so we are going to try and incorporate questions and even comments, anything people have to say if they're not in the building, uh, and we'll do all that on hashtag CatoCEF. For those of you who don't know me, I am Neil McCluskey, and I am the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. If you're wondering what Cato CEF stands for, by the way, it's Cato Center for Educational Freedom. Um, It is my great pleasure to welcome you to today's discussion on why is college so pricey? Theories compete. I want to thank our panelists especially for coming here. I want to introduce them all because my job is to introduce the moderator, and he'll give you a quick introduction to everybody who's here. I should also note before we get started, we have a pretty new Cato book on higher education called Unprofitable Schooling, Examining Causes of and Fixes for America's Broken Ivory Tower. Uh, It's available at fine book uh, sellers all around the country, but also out in the hallway. So if you want to get one of those, that's great. Anyway. Let me then get right to introducing Eric. He said, I don't need to read his entire bio, which is good, because it's such a long list of accomplishments. We would be just about done with the forum when I finish that. Um, But he is a senior reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education. He focuses on federal and state policy, future of public higher education, accreditation, and occasionally legal issues in music. Um, Is that enough? Should yes, I stop I there? Okay, fun. if you want to tell them more, feel free. Uh, I will say, though, some of you may be familiar with them. You may remember them from such Cato events as College Accreditation in the Crosshairs, Panel 2, Quality Control and traditional Higher Ed. So is that your favorite panel you've ever done? It was the
1: best panel probably in the history of the planet.
0: There you have it. So I can't top that. Eric, take it away.
1: So, th- thank you, Neil, uh, and uh, and appreciate uh, Neil and, and Cato for having me here today. Um, it's a very important topic, as you know. Um, I am supposed to ask uh, everybody to, uh, well, actually, no, this is just speakers are supposed to turn off their cell phones. I didn't read this one ahead of time. Well, anyway. So, um, yeah, I'm a senior reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education. Uh, I write a lot about basically, to, to in shorthand, policy and money. And... Um, Uh, As you know, uh, the price of college is in the news uh, almost every day. Uh, You would have a hard time looking through national and even regional news sites today without finding a story on how expensive college tuition has become, how the high price is keeping low-income students from applying or completing, how it's driving middle-income students and their parents into crippling amounts of debt or slowing the economy and even, uh, in some cases, there is speculation that the uh, The debt bubble is forming a huge bubble that will burst and throw the entire nation into another great recession. Um, And why is college tuition so expensive? Uh, The explanations for this are many and vary uh, greatly based on the perspective of who is raising the issue. For faculty, right, it's often that there are too many administrators on campus. Uh, The administration often blames the cost of regulation or or the cost of labor, uh, employment benefits, The public and sometimes the media focus on the cost of athletics, for instance, or campus amenities epitomized by climbing walls or the infamous lazy rivers, right, of which there are actually very few, I'm I'm told. But two arguments in particular that that Cato wanted to focus on today uh, have sort of arisen, have sharply divided the political and policy discussion on this issue, the first, generally espoused by those representing public colleges and left-leaning politicians, is that the shrinking value of state appropriations have forced college to raise tuition just to keep up with the rising costs uh, of of their labor and enrollment. In other words, public colleges have to raise their prices to offset the declining value of the state dollar. And I'm I'm purposely not saying state cuts here because that would be uh, not true entirely. The second argument, Uh, which is referred to often as the Bennett hypothesis, uh, named after the former uh, education secretary, is mostly supported by politically conservative folks. Uh, Colleges have simply increased their tuition to soak up the increasing amount of federal student aid available to their students. Is that a fair shorthand summary?
0: Well, people will hear more from me on that. Okay. We'll go with that. All right.
1: Not surprisingly, perhaps, I would argue, that research hasn't completely validated either view. Uh, There is some evidence that... uh, uh, and I think Doug has written about this, right, that, that uh, declining state appropriations or the declining value of state appropriations has contributed to some portion of increasing uh, tuition. Um, there's very little uh, strong research evidence, as I understand it, that, that backs up the Bennett hypothesis. Uh, and there, But I would argue there were also even uh, questions about the premise of high price, which is usually connected to the increase uh, the, the argument is college is high, and, and we usually cite uh, sticker price, right? Uh, the published sticker price, which is not what most students actually pay. I was looking at the College Board website today, and if we can trust their their, uh, their information, the net price, what students actually pay on average at a public two or four-year college, is less than four thousand dollars a year in tuition, right? At a at a uh, uh, even though the sticker price is. Uh, 9,400 or more. Uh, I think at private colleges, the, net, uh, the average net price that most students pay is somewhere around $14,000. So is college really that expensive? Uh, and why, if so, why? What's driving the cost? Um, do colleges even know what their costs are and what they're related to? Um, so we're gonna get to all of that today. Our panelists, of course, uh, bring a very broad perspective to this debate. And we have, uh, on the end, we have uh, Mr. Douglas Weber. He's the associate professor and director of graduate studies in the economics department at Temple University in Philadelphia, and he's a research fellow at the Institute for the Study of Labor. His main areas of interest are labor economics and the economics of higher ed. Uh, To his right is uh, Jason Delisle, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute where he studies and writes about higher education finance with an emphasis on student loans and, of course, uh, Mr. McCluskey, and uh, the way this is going to work is, uh, each of these folks, starting with Mr. Weber, Doug, are going to uh, stand up and, and talk for ten or so minutes. Um, I'm going to have some prepared questions for them, and we're going to have a little dialogue, and then we'll uh, we'll go to a Q&A. Uh, that'll be at least the last, probably I'm guessing, 40 minutes or so. We'll, we'll leave lots of time for for audience questions and uh, and some more debate. Okay, so here we go.
2: Yes, is up. Oh, it's wonderful! wonderful. Mm, let's see. Awesome. All right. Oh, thank you so much, Eric, for uh, uh, for that introduction. Um, so I realized now that uh, Jason didn't bring a PowerPoint, and and Neil has one slide, and so I'm. Uh, very clearly the uh, professor here on the on the, uh, on the panel. So I don't have that many slides, but um, uh, so sorry for that. Uh, so one, thank you so much for having me. Um, just a, a quick disclaimer, I am legally blind. So I apologize in advance if you see me at the reception afterwards and you um, maybe even know me and I don't recognize you, it is, I promise, not personal. Um, so I'm going to give just kind of a, a broad overview to what you know some of the, the possible factors um, you know could or some of the the, the big possible factors for um, you know the the rising price of, uh, of tuition at uh, at various schools so first you know there's you know uh, one that gets quite a bit of, uh, of publicity wasteful spending so this could be anything from administrative bloat that we have you um, you know, not just been hiring, you know, professors over time. In fact, you know, at many universities, you know, my own included, the, you know, number of tenure track faculty has remained constant over the last several decades. But the number of administrators has, you know, has increased quite a bit. A lot of this happened, you know, say in the 80s and 90s. There's been less, a lot less administrative growth, you know, recently. But, you know, that's still a, you know, candidate factor. There's amenity spending um, that you know, lazy rivers are the uh, you know as, as Eric had mentioned and I was also planning to uh, to point out that while this is you know something that gives you know that you know, people get understandably passionate about there aren't uh, at least in terms of lazy rivers you know there's there's really you know, at most kind of a couple dozen actually um, around the country now fancy dorms maybe there you're getting uh, you know some more play. Um, then there's, you know, of course, you know, one of uh, uh, the, you know, kind of scourge of many, uh, many in higher ed is the, the rankings, the U.S. news uh, rankings that, you know, everyone everyone wants to move up their rank. But if, you know, just, just mathematically, if everybody invests, say, an extra $10 million to, you know, increase their rank, what happens? everyone stays exactly the same rank, uh, and everybody's at $10 million. Um, this type of competition, you absolutely do see. You see it in, um, you know, fancier marketing materials um, that, you know, relative to what, um, you know, when, when I was, uh, so I uh, uh, went to college in 2003 at the University of Florida, go Gators, um, and um the you know, the marketing materials that I was getting, you know my parents were were amazed at what you know the the you know the just the 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 glossy brochures and everything relative to what uh, you know what if anything they had gotten um you know when they were you know around at the, the same point. Then there's you know things that are there's certainly been spending increases that you know, we wouldn't necessarily categorize as wasteful spending, that um, there's, um, uh, you know, we, we do spend a lot more now, partially because there's, you know, things that we've learned how to educate students better. There are, you know, there have been increases in technology that cost money, but that do produce better outcomes. Um, there's, you know, in many cases, uh, students today are more expensive to educate than the students who were going to school at, you know, several decades ago. Because, you know, several decades ago, you were drawing from really the top part, you know, only the, not not only, but predominantly the, uh, you know, the very, very high-ranked, you know, students coming out of high school who were, you know, very, very prepared for college, who had, um, you know, Family backgrounds that you know were very, very invested and had the the ability to invest in their education. Now you're having a much more diverse group of students who are um, who are attending university, and this is um, they are inherently more uh, more expensive to educate, and so you know you have to spend more money uh, to achieve the same outcome. There, I w- I'd argue this is not you know this is not the wasteful spending in the sense of. Um, the you know lazy rivers that we're actually we're getting an you know some outcome for it. Um, other factors and these are I'd categorize more as you know kind of structural factors um, relating to um, you know the the market for higher education. Neil's going to tackle the the Bennett hypothesis and so I won't uh, spend um, you know any any time on that. Um, there's state divestment. This is something I've uh, I've written on. Now this is this of course you know definitionally can only explain the rise, you know, some of the rise in tuition at public schools, because they're the only ones that get a state appropriation. That um, um, there's on average, been about a twenty to twenty-five percent per student drop in uh, in uh, state and local funding for um, for students. Um, now, this does vary quite a bit uh, by you know by school and by state. Um, you know, my school of Temple, for instance. Um, but since the year two thousand, the state appropriation has roughly, you know, dropped by half. So quite a bit more than this. Some states, the state appropriation per student has actually gone up. So, you know, the the point is, it's it's a lot more complicated than um, just saying, you know, there are some states where. You know this. This can't explain anything, just definitionally, because things have, you know, funding has actually gone up. Some states where it's gone down a lot more. Uh, the whole point that I want to make, and that I try to give to my students when I talk about this issue, is that you know there's there is not one um, one answer. There's. You know many, many, many different answers. That you know everything matters, um, and um, you know the the relative share of what matters differs by sector and by school. Um, the other you know structural factor that I wanted to mention is called Baumol's cost disease, um, and this is uh, this is something I'm just starting to get. Uh, you need really specific data to really look at this, and um, Shortly, getting access to hopefully to those data, um, but this is the notion that, uh, and this, this has also been mentioned quite a bit with uh, the the rise of healthcare costs. So um, this is kind of a, a competition argument that you know the returns to a PhD, you know, that the returns in the private sector have gone up quite a bit over time. Um, that. Uh, you know, the private sector is paying more for PhDs, particularly in quantitative fields um, like mine of economics. Now, if this is the case, well, that means that over time to get the exact same quality person that a school has to pay more, but they don't get any more productivity for it, um, that they're they're getting the exact same person of the same quality. But today that person, you know, uh, uh, commands a higher salary in the private sector than they did. You know, 10 20 30 40 years ago so they're having to pay more to get the same thing um, but it's you know it's it's a much harder issue to uh, you know to it's a much tougher egg to crack because we're talking about you know the the competitive market here and so, you know, solving that, you know, th- this, is, this is why you know, investment in education, technology, and improving product edu- productivity in education—that's what you need to attack the cost disease. So, you know, I just kind of—I already kind of mentioned, like, you know, to, to some extent, every one of these factors is is responsible, and you know, they're all there's, you know, what share, you know, what proportion um, um, of, of blame each one gets. Differs by the school, by the sector, and over time. So, you know, when we're talking about wasteful spending, like I said, you know, there was, you know, at a, at a per student level in the eighties and nineties, there were big, big increases in administrative spending. You know, it's been less since then, and so that you can't really explain much of the the more recent increase, um, you know, uh, based on administrative bloat. The um, you know student amenities this definitely matters uh, although I'd argue that it's much more concentrated among what we typically call the um, you know the quote unquote elite colleges the um, you know many of these you know fancy amenities like you know we the New York Times will focus on them quite a bit and trust me. I hate this wasteful spending. Whenever I see a you know a, a lazy river, and again, there's only a couple dozen of them in the country. But when I see a school, you know, uh, I think one of the most recent ones was LSU. You know, built one, and I absolutely hate it because one, it is the definition of of uh, wasteful spending, but two, you know, the just the the optics of it are awful. Um, and, you know, I think the optics of it do more damage to anything than, um, you know, than anything else. Um, when you talk about, you know, the the non-wasteful spending, I mean, there's, there's you know, um, absolutely evidence that, you know, things like, um, you know, when, when um, states have uh, have divested, um, so I'll, I'll preview, you know, my my findings a little bit, uh, you know, you know, here in state divestment, that I find that um, from the year 2000 forward, we're talking about a, you know, uh, state divestment is responsible for about 30% of tuition increases. From the the Great Recession forward, we're talking about 40%. So this is non-trivial. This matters. But it's not the whole story. Um, it's it's not none of the story either it's you know it's it's a, a piece of the puzzle uh, what you know what states do what school the average school will do is if they receive um, a, a budget cut they'll roughly raise tuition um, a, a, about 30 percent and then they'll cover the rest uh, sorry the, the, uh, they'll cover uh, 30% the 30 percent of the budget cut with uh, a tuition increase and they'll uh, cover the rest with a spending decline. The problem is, is that this might actually hurt students, that the spending uh, decrease might actually hurt students more than the the tuition increase when you factor in how important graduation is for outcomes. And that's what some recent work has found. What I want to briefly finish up here mentioning is um, how, um, how difficult it is to estimate some of these things that just looking, you know, let's just take state appropriate, uh, state divestment, that, you know, looking at, you know, trends over time, well, it's not random. You know, when when states cut spending, what also is typically happening? We're going into a recession, and schools are, you know, changing their tuition partly in response to student demand and what the market will bear. Well, that's, you know, that's not, you know, it. In order to make uh, a claim that what happens you know, immediately following a, uh, a state budget cut is a, a quote-unquote causal effect, it needs to be random, and that's anything but random. Also ignores, you know, the the fact that there's, you know, so many, you know, there's there's a give and take between, you know, the state legislature and and you know, public schools. And furthermore, you know, many states have things like, you know, tuition caps, freezes. That you know, if you just look at these aggregate, you know, changes in spending and state appropriations, you know, you're going to mask all these things. So, you know, my point is. know it's not trivial you know to to actually assign you know how much of the blame goes to any one of these things Um, and you know it uh, anyone who tells you otherwise you know is is being disingenuous. Um, Now the last thing that I'll leave you with here uh, is just some statistics on Baumol's cost disease just from my field of economics. Uh, so 2012 was my job market year when I was going uh, um, uh, when I was you know going on the market. The um, average academic salary was around um, uh, was about 110,000. So this is you know, people who got a job at some um, and PhD in econ do a lot better on average than you know most fields. So this is you know, way better than uh, um, you know I won't name any other disciplines, but pretty much name any other discipline. Um, now, this breaks down, say, about 120,000 at PhD-granting institutions, 100 grand at MA institutions, and around 75 or 80,000 at um, institutions that are you know, predominantly BA-granting. Uh, the typical, you know, say, private sector uh, you know, consulting uh, you know, starting salary for economists in 2012, and these are all inflation adjusted. We're talking you know, more on the you know, 125, 130, um, you know, the top places we're offering 150. You know, now, you know, the top econ consulting firms are offering 175. The you know, more you know, middle of the road ones, we're talking 150. So in order to get the same person, you're having to pay more, and these are, you know, when you're talking about, you know, the skills that, um, um, you know, we're, we're, when we're talking about quantitative skills that, you know, employers really, really like, a lot of them are taught in, you know, to toot my discipline's horn, but, you know, in, you know, econ graduate schools, and that's why they command such a high, you know, value in the private sector, but, you know, this is, this is, you know, just I think emblematic of, you know, of, you know, how how this is such a complicated problem that there's no single silver bullet which is going to fix it, um, you know. But, uh, you know, that's you know, that's why we get to uh, have fun coming up here and uh, and talking about it. So thank you so much. I'm sorry I took a few extra minutes, um, but uh, yeah.
3: I just dug, for my That's okay. That's okay. I, great. I thought that was like the, like the greatest jujitsu move ever, where you come into Cato and tell them the reason why uh, college costs a lot is because of the labor market and right, the free and market. the free market yeah. and prices. <laughs> that, that was. I don't know if you guys all caught that, but that was that was brilliant. <laughs> um, well, uh, so uh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm going to say just a few things on this sort of on the uh, uh, first on the state disinvestment issue um, and and then on the sort of Bennett hypothesis thing um, and, and speak a little bit more. Generally, um, one thing I sort of noticed um, a few years back uh, around the, these two issues, right, the sort of, which are, which are sort of related, right, the state disinvestment. So states cut funding um, for their general appropriation to their colleges and universities, uh, and the universities then raise prices to make up for the funding cut, right. Um, and then the Bennett hypothesis, which is the government gives money to universities, uh, and th- they simply are able to raise prices because the college because the students have more money at their at their disposal. Um, what I thought was really interesting about these two issues in the in the policy conversations, and I think it says a lot about just sort of the sort of who gets to control these debates. Uh, it, it, the, the discussion around the Bennett hypothesis was always Especially in the media and the policy circles, was was met immediately with skepticism, uh, and a demand for rigorous econometric studies, empiricism, data, uh, you name it. Right? You you had to if you were going to make this claim, uh, you you better you better bring a, 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 a great study and a and a PhD in econ, right? And then it would be torn apart and scrutinized like crazy. Uh, again, relationship of government funding to the price of tuition. Uh, if you were going to make the claim that state funding um, for uh, cuts in state funding was driving tuition in this debate, you needed basically to produce almost no evidence other than one line going up and one line going down. And in the policy community and in the media, um, that was good enough, right, right? <laughs> um, but, I, you, know, I, you know, I've always thought, like, well, this is, this, is an, this is a double standard here, right? One where the government money is good in doing the right thing, uh, and so if there's less of it, um, then that, that, you know, this bad thing is happening, and we should just accept that. The other one where the government money is, not, is said to not be doing the good thing that we assume the government money is supposed to be doing uh, is met with a lot of skepticism. Uh, and I just thought that these things were these things were sort of unfair, um, and when we started to look at it now doug 's paper is is definitely an exception, right Doug has actually done the, done the hard work on this and done a a, real, um, a a real sort of study on the relationship of state funding and tuition um, but there really wasn 't much out there uh, when when I, when I first started looking at it, and it's still I mean nobody has really sort of tackled this issue head on sure uh, and it, usually, it was sort of a like side issue in some other studies. And what was interesting is, as even as a side issue in some other studies, it was showing that the relationship just wasn't that strong. Now, we can debate whether or not 24% and 30% is really strong, but if you looked at the, at the nature of the, the policy debate, it was as if it was a one-for-one one relationship um, between state funding and tuition. You know, states cut funding a dollar, tuition has to go up a dollar. Uh, but what, when you started seeing this in some of the the literature, it looked fairly weak. Uh, and what I thought was sort of striking is nobody was really pointing that out um, because I you know my sort of suspicion in all this is that the 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 debates these debates are heavily dominated by advocacy organizations and sort of center left um, advocates that are that you know sort of uh, would be highly skeptical of the Bennett hypothesis uh, and so we're all really skeptical of the Bennett hypothesis, uh, and they're not very skeptical of the state disinvestment, uh, or they're you know they they know that that is absolutely right, and so you can just show it on a line chart. Um, so I, I just would I would sort of uh, urge you to sort of watch for things like that in 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 higher ed policy discussions. Um, I think that this one is changing a, l- a little bit now. I think Doug, Doug's paper obviously helps there. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think that this is a. Um, it, it sort of speaks volumes to the, the sort of you know the people are controlling this debate, and uh, it's hard to get a good a good sort of fair comparison between these two issues. Um, so, I, an, another issue related to this, I just want to mention on, and this will be sort of my last point I make on this is that I, I actually think that the, the sort of conservatives and free market um, supporters. I think they've sort of overinvested in this Bennett hypothesis issue. Um, I, I, think it, I think it's really dominated, you know, the, the, how they um, think about and care about higher education policy and how they look at government intervention in, in higher education. So, and what I mean by sort of overinvested in that is that um, they're looking for whatever bad things the government policy is going to do in one signal, which is price. Um, the price of tuition. So if the price of tuition doesn't move um, or doesn't move as we expect because of more government funding, um, then, you know, then we're not seeing what we expected to happen, right? And, so, and, then, we're, and then, then we're endlessly debating this. But what I think that, that focus misses um, some other things that, that, that are happening sort of underneath. So, and, and I'm going to throw these out there on sort of a theoretical level so that, and I just urge you to think about them as you think about future conversations about Bennett hypothesis or even what we're, the discussion today. Um, you could have a, a big increase in, in government support for higher education, Pell grants, um, student loans, Uh, and actually not get an increase in price, but actually induce a whole bunch of students who are sort of on the margin of whether or not they're qualified or good material for a particular program, Um, suddenly they come in uh, because of this availability of looser credit and more grant money at the same price uh, as was charged last year or the year before, right? So no increase in price, but you've actually changed the sort of the, the makeup of the student body. You've also changed the number of students who are going to be entering the job market with those degrees. Uh, and so you're, you are actually changing and affecting the market, perhaps in a bad way, with additional money, but you can't actually see it in the price. Um, so I think what you want to do, what, what I think where the conversation needs to go, I think is really about value. Right? Like how much are people paying uh, for the education and what are they earning? And, and this actual, and, and this sort of concept of what are people earning, what is this value, this value proposition being price versus earnings, uh, is actually um, kind of a new paradigm. Uh, if any of you are familiar with the Spellings Commission report uh, from, what is it now? 2006, Margaret Spellings commissioned a bunch of experts to talk about the quality of higher education. Um, I'd go, go back and read it if you get a chance. Uh, And and there's a lot of complaining about, you know, stuff that we complain about today that, you know, um, colleges are doing X, Y, and Z that that we think is wasteful and not productive. But one thing the Spellings Commission doesn't mention, doesn't mention earnings and labor market outcomes. Doesn't care, which is pretty amazing, right? What they care about is learning outcomes, but not earnings. Um, And... I think if, if you if you talk to sort of the higher ed policy community today, and you and, and I've actually done this. I mean, this is true. I've said I've mentioned this thing that the spellings commission doesn't even mention earnings, and they're like oh, and they're like no, you're kidding me. Of course it mentions earnings, because we've shifted so much in our in our thought process about that we should be measuring earnings, because I think now we actually can. I think 10, 15 years ago. The idea of being able to measure how much students earn from completing a specific higher education program was somebody who said, yeah, that's, wow, that that would be quite an undertaking. Uh, Can we do that? And how long would it take? And now we're starting to see it. Um, And, uh, you know, I think what we're going to see now with the, we see this in the college scorecard under the Obama administration. The Trump administration has continued that. They're expanding it uh, to include earnings for, um, uh, at the program level. Uh, And so I think this is where the the conversation is headed. And I think it's one that sort of the free market and the the conservatives should embrace more rather than the sort of obsession over the price signal. Um, I think they should be looking at more of value and a sort of price versus earnings um, comparison as a way of determining, is the government money um, doing good things or bad things, or are we getting what we pay for in these programs instead of constantly worrying about uh, price increase? So I'll leave it at that.
0: I stood for your applause like I had earned it. Um, you know, then I've heard you guys talk, I would totally change everything I'm gonna say, but I gotta stick with my script here. But I mean, everything you've said is, is, is important Um, And so now I'm gonna give a little story that I hadn't originally planned to give because I actually got, I'm supposed to sort of defend the Bennett hypothesis and I'm sort of got to stick to that because I kind of put this together. So I assigned me that job. Um, But what's interesting about the evolution that you talked about was I first started working at Cato a while ago, 2003. I was actually hired to do K through 12 work for the most part. But this report came across my desk and it was from uh, congressional subcommittee, I can't remember which one it was, but they dealt with higher education. It's called the college cost crisis, and you may have seen it, you might remember it, but it had this table on it, and it had, it was probably covered 20 years, and it gave a percentage increase in aid per student, I think, from the federal government every year, and then a percentage increase in the price, and they said, this is just terrible. We can never catch up, and so that's kind of how I got into the Bennett hypothesis, and the reason that I've sort of spent a fair amount of time kind of pounding away at the Bennett hypothesis, is when I started to talk about it, there were actually people in academia and elsewhere who said, this is absolutely crazy. Everyone knows there's no truth to the Bennett hypothesis. And I thought, that's outrageous, really, because there's lots of good economic reasons to think it. And so I've spent a lot of time because of the price issue, because it's the price that originally Bennett was about was, are we sort of, is it self-defeating to try and make college more affordable with aid if that aid leads to higher prices? But as I've done more higher ed over several years, absolutely, Jason, what you said is there, the the... The benefits, and I think a lot of the costs, which I think tend to outweigh the benefits, go far beyond just the price. It could be that we have overconsumption of higher education. I think a lot of people worry about we're requiring credentials for jobs that didn't require them before, and the job itself hasn't changed. So credential inflation, it isn't as simple, certainly, as price. And now let me talk about price for the next 12 minutes. (laughs) No, No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm not actually gonna talk about price entirely. And in fact, um, I think that something underlying a lot of what happens in higher education, I agree, it's not just one thing. So Doug put up a lot of a lot of contributors to this. It is a multivariate world, as people say, and higher education is ultima, ultimate multi, ultimately multivariate. I will say though, I think there is something that underlies a lot of what colleges do. And it's not simply about can they get more money because of aid. Uh, you guys, uh, some of you may know Howard Bowen, or have heard of Howard Bowen, or know of Bowen's or revenue theory of costs. I've seen other names for it. But basically, he says in the search for, quote, excellence, prestige, and influence, Colleges will raise every dollar they can and spend every dollar that they raise. That's basically what it comes down to. There's more to it than that, but that's uh, basically it. I think that actually needs some caveat. So the way we look at it is we say, well, a college is always going to get every single dollar it can grab because it can think of good things to do with those dollars or things they think are good. And I think that that generally that's right, but we do see colleges not always grabbing for every dollar, especially if you're looking for prestige. So sometimes schools will discount the price to a kid who may come from a family that could pay the full price, but may have higher test scores than the average of the school and they wanna bring that kid in. So prestige sometimes isn't only about more money or money isn't the only thing that buys you prestige, but money certainly helps to buy prestige pay uh, famous professors more, um, pay for those nicer dorms, Uh, I I always have to say, because I love to use the um, Lazy River example, it's not the Lazy Rivers that are causing the price increase or the cost increase. I look at them as a symptom of a system that may have a lot of third-party money that enables people to demand things that have very little to do with what they are in that place for, which is education. So it's not that these things are necessarily the cost drivers. They're symbolic of too much of other people's money involved in someone's decision to consume education. Uh, anyway, and it's also certainly true, and I'm my one slide will show some of this. Yeah, I don't doubt that public colleges are constrained by legislators. They're constrained by missions. I mean, it's not as simple as they just always raise their prices. Um, but I do think that, generally speaking, the Bennett hypothesis can be seen at play in higher ed costs. Now, if you don't know, the, higher, uh, the Bennett hypothesis from Bill Bennett, which I think somebody already said, it was in a New York Times op-ed called Our Greedy Colleges. Um, now, that's a symbol that we have probably not changed how media works. You would know better than I would, but it seems I bet Bill Bennett didn't write that. Headline, it was to make people mad so they'd read it. Um, I don't know that when you read it, he's really saying just colleges are more greedy than anyone else. And this is really important because I don't actually think people think people in colleges are more greedy than anyone else. It's that they have the same basic level of self-interest as anyone else. Anyway, in that op-ed, he said, quote, increases in financial aid in recent years have enabled colleges and universities blithely to raise their tuitions, confident that federal loan subsidies would help cushion the increase. Now, the first thing to note is that he says uh, it doesn't create tuition inflation, the aid. It's enabled by aid. So it's not that we have aid and then that forces colleges, excuse me, to raise their prices. It's that they want to do that if they can. Because, again, colleges and people in them tend to think there are good things that we could do if only we had the funds for them. And if the students have more money at the command, then the students are one way to get that money not to do mean things or just to hoard dollars, but to do things the colleges think would be good. Um, And I think broadly, uh, the the hypothesis makes sense. I'll just give you some basic numbers here. Since 1980, inflation adjusted, undergrad tuition fee, room and board prices have risen um, from 17,000 roughly to about $49,000 at four-year private colleges. This is adjusted for inflation. That is, it's about a $31,000 increase. At four-year public colleges, tuition-free room and board went from about $8,000 to about $21,000 or roughly a $13 or $14,000 increase. Um, So those are big increases in the price. At the same time, aid per full-time equivalent student has risen from about $5,000 to about $17,000, which is about a $12,000 increase. Now, I should note that those numbers combine graduate students and undergraduate students. You can separate them out, but I couldn't get that data easily all the way back to 1980. Um, But this gives you a pretty good sense that aid has gone up and prices have gone up. Doesn't mean it's causal, but it does give you the evidence to see they've kind of gone up together. Um, It's also true that the percentage of students receiving aid has greatly increased. I only got the data quickly, this is federal numbers from 1992-93. In 1992-93, about 58% of full-time, full-year undergrads received some sort of aid. In 2015-16, it was up to about 86% got that aid. So higher amounts of aid, more people getting them. Um, clearly aid and prices have risen together, not exactly one for one. We don't know there's causal, but they have gone together. Um, I will note that there actually is a fairly substantial empirical literature, depending on how you define substantial, that does find evidence that colleges to some extent capture, and I don't think they intend to capture, but it's often the term used, capture aid, that they raise prices when aid is aid maximums are increased. Uh, presumably, at least according to this theory, because they can, whether it's because they can or whatever, they do seem to do it and there is some empirical research that shows us this. But it is, it's actually very hard to pin down. Uh, and I agree, and so a lot of that research says, well, let's see if they increase the student loan maximum on this year, in the in the next year, Do we see a kink in the prices that are charged by colleges? I don't actually think it's that simple. I don't think colleges watch uh, uh, intently what the federal government does and says, well, if they're going to increase the maximum, that next year we're going to increase our prices. That may happen, but I don't actually think that's what happens. Um, I think that it, it probably works in lots of ways, and probably the main way is well, now we've got these things we want to do. Let's think of where we can get the money. And the aid makes it easier, again, to get that money through students. Um, and now, I, can you put up my slide, my, my solitary slide? There it is. So um, Jason mentioned people, bad people just showing it on a line chart. Yeah. <laughs> and so here's my line chart, which makes me a bad person. But I don't, I don't put this up because I'm trying to prove something causal. I'm trying to illustrate something that I think I'm observing and people can disagree with it. But so this is going back to 1980 uh, to 2018 and it's not inflation adjusted. And, I, and that's important. There's a reason I didn't adjust it for inflation. So that top line are those state and local appropriations. The bottom line is tuition and fees. And what I think is interesting is if you look at that tuition and fee line, it tends to be fairly straight. You see a kink in it, uh, something of a kink, I think it's around, I think it was 1999 or 2000, 2001, somewhere around there, but it looks relatively constant. It's like this and then a little bit like this, but it's not like that top line, that appropriations line. What that bottom suggests to me is that state legislators, boards of trustees, the people who have a say in what the tuition is going to be at public colleges and universities. So not private, this is just public. They probably have kind of a built-in default of, well, roughly every year we're gonna do a 2% increase or a 3% increase, and it may have actually very little to do with the appropriations. I would also note that this line is not tuition and fee sticker prices. This is revenue per full-time and equivalent student because we we're talking about prices. Prices are crazy. And most people aren't paying those prices. And they, almost nobody's paying those prices, or many people, with their own money. That aid is sort of baked into the prices, including institutional aid. It's not just government aid. But so what I think is interesting is I didn't do this adjusted for inflation because I don't think probably legislators or board of trustees say, you know, in five years, inflation's probably going to be X, and so we should account for that and how we set tuition. Maybe they do. But what this suggests to me is, no, they pretty much have a standard path on which they set tuition and fees in order to get a certain amount of revenue. And certainly it does, the, the slope goes up as you start to see a lot more of that volatility in the appropriations. But you'll also note, and this is something I think is very important, there is only one place in that bottom line where you ever see a decrease. And so, yes, we see colleges, I mean, we, yes, we see colleges raising, or or legislators, whoever, it depends on your state, but we see them increasing the revenue they get through tuition and fees when appropriations go down. We see them increasing the revenue they get when appropriations go up. And so I'm not actually sure they're that closely connected to them. Now, again, this isn't adjusted for inflation. It looks a little different when you adjust it for inflation, Um, but I'm trying to look at sort of a the perspective of somebody setting these things from year to year, every two years, but in short term. Um, Just so you know what it, sort of the effect of inflation, if you, using the, there there are different ways to calculate inflation, but higher ed has one that tries to sort of, uh, Jason does not like it, for many, many people don't like it, I'm just, I'm not endorsing it, I'm just going to mention it, but it's it's, uh, an an inflation adjustment that's supposed to sort of be more tailored to higher education, you know, because you have to hire more sort of professional people who will command more money. Lots of, they're trying to isolate, they may not do it successfully, but the basket of goods that colleges use, as opposed to like the CPI or something, which is some basket of goods that regular people use. So, but... Even using that, which people say is sort of biased toward higher ed, if you combine the appropriations and the tuition and fee revenue, we do see uh, from 1980 till today, the per-pupil revenue goes from $10,725 to $14,566, or a 36% increase. So in real numbers, using a friendly to higher ed uh, index, there has been meaningful increase in the amount of revenue brought in per pupil. And don't forget, there's also been big increases in the numbers of pupils. So for for institutions, that can be a big increase in revenue. Now, I'm almost done because I know I'm going beyond my time. Um, Just a quick thought on Baumol. Um, I I don't doubt that Baumol, this cost disease, has some effect. I will just point out one thing that, that makes it a little bit questionable in the higher ed context is that room and board charges, which presumably you don't require uh, professors or people who are really highly educated to do room and board work, you know, to run the dorms and the food service and things like that. Well, those prices have gone way up too. Inflation adjusted four-year private schools have seen room and board prices rise from 1980 to 2018, adjusted for inflation, from $6,000 to $12,680. Um, and at public, for your institutions. It's gone from 6,680, um, oh sorry, from 5,330 to 11,140. So those are big increases in room and board which presumably aren't as affected by bamo 's cost disease. Doesn't mean it doesn't have something to do with it, but there is some reason to be dubious that that is the primary driver. But regardless, as everybody said here, and so now I'm just being redundant, but what's new? This is a multivariate problem. Lots of things are contributors. We see good and bad that manifest themselves in many things beyond price, beyond graduation rates, all sorts of things. Um, But I do think sort of at its base, colleges and the people in them are kind of like everyone else. They're generally kind of trying to maximize their utility. It may be more money, it may be more prestige, it may be getting to do kind of fun stuff, even if it means less money. But a lot of it does require money, and a lot of uh, that money they are enabled to get because aid gives it to the students who then become a source of it. Thanks.
1: I'll stand up here at the podium so it gives me a sense of authority as I ask questions here. I I have to... Maximize that for myself. Um, I want to start with uh, tuition, pricing, right? So uh, we often focus on the individual price that students are paying as, as tuition. How I like to think of it, however, is, is as it's a big pot of money that colleges use to cover all the spending that isn't covered by other sources of revenue, right? So if you expand your chemistry department by four faculty members one year, uh, and your state appropriation doesn't go up, or you don't have the um, money from your endowment to do that, where does that money come from, right? It it might come from tuition. Now it might also come from from other sources. It might come from philanthropic sources, right? But but it's and and Doug and folks, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. So so that's how I kind of think of tuition, not in not in the small sense, but in the big sense. So. It, it covers some of your aspirational spending as well, right? And that flows down to students. So the problem with that, I think, is that colleges really don't know how much they're spending on, say, a three-credit course in econ, mm-hmm. right? And Doug's shaking his head. Colleges are terrible at this, or at least they're telling me how they're doing this, right? And I wonder... Uh, would some of this be solved if colleges simply did a better job of accounting, of understanding what it really costs and setting their prices according to the delivery rather than uh, so so you could, in a sense, maybe set an a la carte model, right? Because the, co- the the students off campus are paying the same amount whether they use the library or not, even though the library is probably funded in part through tuition. So uh, I, I'd like to hear some, some thoughts about that.
2: Uh- Yes, I mean, that's a pretty tailor-made question for an economist, I mean, uh, um, I think, you know, understanding where your costs come from are, it's incredibly important, and colleges don't do a good job of it. I mean, one thing that um, I think is, um, a lot of colleges do a really bad job with is, like space management, and I know this is this is not at all a you know, sexy topic, but just that um, you know from like weekends, nights, even in a lot of cases on Fridays, there are you know there's empty classrooms, and that I think you could do you know there's there's a lot of room for just kind of rearranging things in terms of you know how a schedule is set up that. Um, you know, with without increasing costs at all, because you know the the fixed cost of the building and the classroom has already been paid; it's already there. Um, but there's a lot of you know inefficiency in you know in that respect. And I think if um, uh, if colleges did a better job with that and that sort of thing, now how much is that going to move the needle? I have no idea it's be, because we do a bad job at uh you know um, dealing with costs in that way we have no idea how much it would move the needle but i think that kind of thing needs to be done i'm a huge proponent of you know scheduling you know more classes at night and more classes on the weekends and you know things like that All
3: right you want to yeah, well, I mean, it? so, I, yeah, I'm always sort of puzzled, though. I mean, I, I, I hear that, but so so something, though, is is preventing them from, from doing that. You know, they, they don't have an incentive to do it. Um, they don't have the capability to do it. You know, and I, I mean, I still think that, you know, for all the sort of hand-wringing out there about the cost of college, particularly four-year degrees, and now for increasingly master's degrees, you um, from upper middle income families who I, I feel like that 's who the politicians are hearing the most from on this particular issue um, i I think they they do they don 't want a cheaper college they want the same college or better college, and they want to pay less mm-hmm. <laughs> but but they won 't but but really you know it, they have i mean what you see in a lot of the I, th- I think it comes through in the data quite clearly is that there are people choosing to go to more expensive schools. Um, and when they have options. And so, uh, you know, like, for example, you can look at the data. Uh, High-income families take out a lot of federal student loans, right? I mean, that, I mean, that to me, and that I think is sort of fascinating, right? They're doing it to stretch uh, and afford really expensive schools um, in part. And so I, I think that I think there's just so much pressure uh, on the, On the sort of demand side that people are willing to pay that the schools don 't have to i don 't I don't think they have to resort to the kinds of things that, that Doug is talking about at least at least if it looks like they, they may have to next year somehow the crisis is averted do,
2: do yeah. you mind if I mention one of my pet peeves with the, the people choosing more expensive schools real quick um, so um, at Private institutions, there's there's this thing called this exists at all institutions, but private schools do it quite a bit. It's called tuition discounting. It's just basically that you know there's the the sticker price, um, but what people what the average student actually pays is much 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 less at private schools. Um, the average student pays less than right now around less than half of what the actual sticker price is, and this practice has increased quite a bit over time, and. It's hard to actually you know, get you know, good, like, kind of causal data on this, but there's, there's a big psychology you know, component to this of, of a private school that has, or, or, or just private schools competing with private schools or with publics, or um, where um, a, a more expensive school, say, their sticker price is $40,000, um, and they'll say, you know, I'm gonna give you, I like you so much. I'm going to give you a $20,000 scholarship. So it's... uh, And to many people, they're thinking, oh, my gosh, this is like they're giving me $20,000. But then, um, you know, the cheaper school right down the road, which, you know, has, you know, in many cases, the same outcomes, the same earnings outcomes later. um, And, um, you know, it costs, you know, $15,000 is the sticker price, and they give you a $5,000 discount. And people choose the the you know the the one that's you know cost 20 grand um, twice as expensive but in part it's because they you know there's a there's a psychological aspect of thinking like you are getting this school wants to give me twenty thousand, whereas this other school wants to give me five and that happens a lot and
3: uh, I, I do, do you have- yeah uh, yeah I mean you can see that and I see it like in, in some of the I, I have a paper on um, uh, 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 low-income students enrolling at elite colleges and how it looks like this the, the, it's actually increasing a little bit. But one of the things we look at in there is the, the price that elite schools are charging uh, in net tuition um, by income. Uh, and you can see that it's getting the, the gap between what they're charging poor students and what they're charging rich students has been growing and growing and growing and growing, um, which I, I, ironically for, for my, sort of my friends on the left, I'm like, look at this. This is like progressive nirvana. Right, they're like charging the rich people a whole bunch of money, and they're giving the money to the poor kids so they can afford these elite schools. Uh, and and you know, I mean, they're still no, that, it's still unaffordable. They're still unhappy. But um, but yeah, I think that the discounting thing. I think there's evidence that it's gotten you know much more, much more severe and much more pronounced.
0: Yeah, can um, I mean I, I agree with pretty much everything you guys said. Uh, and I think what's really important is if they're not doing it, like you said. And maybe they don't have an incentive to do this sort of um, uh, becoming more efficient. Um, And I do think we have a lot of institutions, and here I'll talk about public institutions. You do wonder if there's an extent to which they're too big to fail. I mean, uh, the University of Michigan or Temple or lots of these big universities, there's no threat they're going out of business. Somebody is going to make sure they stay in business. So there's not really much incentive to become more efficient. I don't know if anybody's looked at this. I certainly haven't. I do wonder if we see, you know, there's a, a lot of, or there's talk at least of, it's kind of the small private liberal arts colleges that are probably in the most jeopardy right now. Right. Um, it would be interesting to see how many of those schools or who that maybe are not, you know, they're not right on the margin, but they feel like they're getting close. How many of those schools try to become actually more efficient, with more efficient building use and things like that. But a lot of schools, there is no, uh, I don't think there's any sense that they are in jeopardy of going out Uh, of business.
1: I wanna point out one thing, which which is that I don't think we should make the assumption that big schools that are high priced are necessarily inefficient. There are things that they could do that would be better. Doug points out the space issue. Uh, The small schools, that is a real problem. Uh, And it seems that the the tuition discounting uh, has sort of run its, course at, at a lot of these places, because they don't have a, a big enough brand to attract, uh, you know, to be selective, to, to, to attract students from across the from across the country. Um, I, I want to ask, and I, Doug brought up the tuition reset. I wonder, you know, has that, uh, and that's where a school, for instance, uh, instead of, saying, charging $30,000 for a year, when it really actually gets a, a net price of, say, Seventeen, right? Simply resets its tuition to about I don't know, let's say twenty-one, right? And 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 so I wonder what's been the effect of that. Has anybody looked at that extensively I, about about what how that plays out?
2: So I don't think so. I think that it's a fairly new phenomenon, and we're going to have to wait. So the the schools and I won't name any of the names, but I think that it's you know they they've done this as. Uh, Many of them have done it as, you know, kind of a last resort type thing where they're, they're, they hit a point where, oh boy, like things are, the, the bubble burst and now we have to, you know, do something really drastic. Um, and, you know, I think uh, uh, as as Jason well knows, you know, higher ed, good higher ed data, you know, lags a couple years. Um, so it'll it'll be a few years before we can, I think, really look at this. Um, now, one, one uh, thing I... Related to this, and also that Jason had mentioned about this kind of the um, the tuition discounting to different uh, uh, to different groups, that um, I think is really important. You know, this is um, there's a, a well known model in economics for this. This is price discrimination, um, and what I always tell my students is, um, imagine um, if um, if you walked into the car dealer. Uh, you want to you want to buy a car, um, and in order to do that, you had to take in a copy of last year's tax return. That's absurd, of course. That's ex- that's essentially what you do on the FAFSA uh, when you apply to college. Oh, like,
3: it's, even, it's even more intrusive. Yeah, tax return. Yeah, that's right. Your assets, your home equity. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but like you know what I. Uh,
2: uh, Perfect price discrimination yeah. is, is is where, um, you know, someone can charge you exactly what your willingness to pay is. And that's in, you know, as the the price of tuition far exceeds, you know, as the sticker price of tuition much farther exceeds um, what, you know, kind of the average, you have much more capacity to do this cross-subsidization. Um, you know, as I, you know, as I, you know, mentioned that, you know, everything is, you know, is aimed at doing this. And like, you know, like Jason mentioned, like this is, this is becoming increasingly um, common over, uh, over time and I think does have a lot of implications for, you know, the higher ed finance going
3: forward. And there is one thing I would throw out there, too, is that, you know, the, the, the schools, and you can see some of this, too, is that, I mean, they're under intense pressure to enroll students who receive aid. Right, they're under pressure to enroll low-income, more low-income oh, yes, students. Oh yes, absolutely, yes, yeah. Right, and so by doing that, right, you're going to see, right, you're going to see the, them enrolling more students with more aid, and they're receiving more federal aid, right, and so, um, but they're doing it for a completely different reason, right? They're doing it for the one, they see it's like their mission, they feel like it's an important thing to do, but also, I mean, they're under pressure to do it. They're under But it's also the future workforce of
1: of America. I mean, we have a, uh, you know, uh, if you talk to demographers, we know that. Uh, uh, you know, basically, the, the demographics is destiny, right? Uh, the, the white birth rate has has uh, basically dropped off, or flattened, or or is falling. Uh, the future college students of America are are largely children of immigrants, people of color, people first generation college students, and that's the workforce of the future. And so, I, I think a lot of public institutions see it as their mission to. Uh, so that's part of the pressure, right, to to preserve, uh, you know, the, the, the educational uh, level, attainment levels uh, of their uh, of their residents, uh, especially as we're being told by the Center for Education and Workforce that all the future, all the jobs of the future require uh, some sort of post-secondary credential, right. So I want to ask one more quick question uh, before I open it up. And that's, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, the the average cost of a public two and four year, the net price, right, uh, of tuition for, an ab- for a two and four year college is, is less than $4,000. $4, so uh, uh, certainly at, at a lot of institutions, it's higher than that. Many it's it's uh, perhaps less. But uh, so what if colleges are driving up the price? Uh, for decades, we've been told that uh, by conservative lawmakers and other, and actually <laughs> Democratic lawmakers as well, progressives, that colleges need to be more efficient. They need to act more like businesses, by God. and. Um, And that's what they're doing. They're maximizing their revenue streams. Why shouldn't they do that?
0: First of all, I want to thank you for uh, endorsing the Bennett hypothesis. as true. Sure. um, Which which it is. Um, But, I mean, the problem is that they're acting like businesses in a massively subsidized uh, industry. Okay. And so the problem is that you don't have anything like, you know, the classic supply-demand curves where the the limit on what you can charge is what somebody else is willing to pay because you're willing to pay a whole lot more if you can get money from other people to pay that price. Okay. And so it becomes a great way for colleges to make a whole lot of money and the people who are their customers get a lot of stuff that they're not really the ones paying for it. Someone else is doing it. And that is hugely problematic for the society where the money is... Quite possibly going from more productive uses that people who earn the money and would use it for things they know they need might have put it toward, and it's instead going to college where we do, we have reached this. Point where there are some water parks. They're not the primary driver of cost, but they are an indication that there may be a little bit too much of pursuit of luxury. There is research that suggests beyond just the water parks, which are a great example to hold up. Okay. But I think it was a, it's that only about the top 10% of students who are uh, academically are choosing colleges when they choose based on academics. And the others are choosing largely on amenities. And I don't think as a society we want an education system where most of the decision making is who has the better food rather than who's providing the better education.
1: I want to challenge that last point that you make, Neil, which is uh, most students, uh, most college students in America go to the college that is closest to them geographically, right? They are not, they don't even have a choice, really. They're going to the public regional or the two-year college that's within driving distance of their home. Uh, because a lot of them are actually not living on, on campuses with the fancy many. So yeah. I, I think we need, when we need to talk about this, right, we we're talking about higher ed as a block, right, uh, and sometimes we focus on the high price of, of the University of Michigan or some of these public flagships or Stanford, <laughs> uh, really elite privates, um, when in fact, you know, there's a whole set of higher education out there where uh, I think that the, the conversation is really very right. well,
0: different. Well, so let me talk about one of the other Uh, pretty bad unintended consequences of this. So if we also subsidize, we subsidize some people, then the politics are we should subsidize everyone, uh, which leads to things like Parent PLUS loans and where we start to actually subsidize wealthier people. But this has also pushed this kind of credential inflation where for jobs you previously didn't need a college degree for, you do now. And those people who are sort of low income, who may not have uh, as good a K through 12 preparation, they're put in a really bad spot where they may not really be, they may not desire to go to college, maybe they don't have the preparation for college, but they have to go because that degree is so important. So there are all sorts of unintended consequences we tend to not talk about here in Washington because the, the, the discussion for politicians who tend to think very short term the next election is, I don't want to be the one who says, I'm not going to give you money right now so you can afford college.
3: Right. Well, I mean, I, Eric, on your, on your last point, I mean, I, I, I mean, you're absolutely right, you know, that a, a lot of students are enrolled in, in, in regional schools. They're enrolled in community colleges. Uh, many of the schools are, are, are open enrollment. Um, but the I would... of students, right, exactly. Yeah, and, but what I would point out, though, is that I think the people that drive the sort of cost-anxiety conversation... Are I, I don't think they're they're necessarily they're thinking of those schools, or they right. they have attended them, right, and so that's why I do I mean I agree with you, but I also think that like the the room and board thing is is an important piece because um, you know I mean if you and again I, the reason why I say this is because I think the like upper middle class and and upper income families which have, which actually are bearing the brunt of the cost of the price increases, um, I, I think you know. Most of their anxiety over the cost of college is about the living expenses. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you ask, you know, I, you know, and I'll, I'll talk to people, and, I'll, and, and they'll say, I'll, I'll cite that four thousand dollar number that you said, which is the right. median tuition price, full time, in state public university. It is net price is about four thousand bucks a year. Uh, if if you say that to someone uh, in these zip codes, yes, right, they'll right. say, what are you talking about? I just sent my kid to school, and it was forty thousand dollars a year. Right? And they're like, if have like 40,000 intuition, They're like, no, what's the difference? Right, they say, so, I, I mean, that's why I think that the, the no, living, the living cost co- thing is important. And, and, and Neil's right that, the, that this, I mean, the, the cost of the, of the living expenses at school, at least the on-campus stuff, has increased faster than the cost of living, right? The cost of living is rising faster than the cost of living, which should, you know, something, something's up there, right? <laughs>
1: Did you want
3: to add anything
2: there? Uh, uh, yeah, so I'll just get back to your, your, uh, your, your point about, you know, colleges acting like businesses. Um, I don't think it's necessarily wrong that college, I think there's a lot of, you know, places where colleges should act more like businesses and, you know, should be, um, you know, subject to more competition that, you know, the, uh, again, I am a trained economist, so the the uh, the competitive market is um, always at the forefront of my mind that and and I've seen it over time even just in the the seven years that I've been a professor that the the focus on um, the increased focus on um, you know, caring about the job outcomes of of students and like the focusing on um, all right you know even though this is not you know the um, the how professors are trained at all, um, we need to figure out how to establish things like internship programs and things like that, that, like, you know, figure out how, you know, um, how to, you know, improve, uh, you know, in a really, you know, not the indirect way that higher ed has always kind of, you know, historically, um, you know, Raised, um, you know, raise people's incomes, but try to you know get much more involved as um, as professors. And I think you know that sort of you know um, acting like a business is really really good. Um, now I completely agree with Neil in that you know one of the problems with schools acting like businesses is that you know it's you know there's subsidizing with other people's money, which is why so much of my work and Jason is very well aware of this has um, focused on you know trying to figure out ways to improve our accountability standards, that, um, you know, I am absolutely a proponent of of public universities and of, you know, investment, uh, you know, um, from the public in schools that on average um, it, it pays off and it does for the vast majority of people. There's, you know, lots and lots of work showing that. But you know because we are talking about you know working with other peoples with, with you know the, the broader society's money uh, in many cases that are funding student loans, you know that means that it should be held to a higher bar than just um you know, business, uh, you know, revenue or profit maximization. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I think is really missing, uh, from, you know, our higher ed system right now is an accountability program that actually has some teeth to it. Um, I don't know if you yeah. agree. Let's, with this let's
1: uh, we, we've got about, uh, we, we went over a little bit of time because we're, we're too fond of hearing ourselves talk. So let's get to, <laughs> to the Q and a, uh, so, uh, uh, Wait to be called on, and wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and our audience watching online can hear the question, and please announce your name and affiliation, and Neil told me not to tell you to make a comment, uh, to, to not make a comment, but to ask a question, but I'll ask, I'll ask you politely. Please, just ask a question, all right? This gentleman in the, in the front had his hand up first, and Pete, wait for the microphone. Hi,
4: my name is Steve Hackett. Uh, You've been talking, the theme was to talk about how tuitions have been going up. And I think you intermes- you intervened in that sort of the total cost to society of, of education. My qu- question to you is don't you think you put the, the, the cart, the horse before the cart, or whatever the expression cart is? For the horse. Um, by not talking about all the costs that are subsidized um, to education that we don't even aren't even aware of considering tax all kinds of tax provisions that favor uh, no real estate tax is charged to educational and so the true so my the true cost of education is so much greater than 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 the tuitions or even the, the state allotments that are are given. So my question to you, after all that, is: Don't you think that you that that should be considered before you get to whether how much of it is paid by tuition and how much of it is paid by state allotments?
0: Uh, well, since I I started this thing, uh, I'll say that we talked about price in part because that's what people talk about first in higher ed. That's what scares the most people, although. I should say, I think the conversations have moved a little bit away from talking about the price and how high it is, more toward debt. But for most of the time, I've looked at higher ed, price is what people have talked about. Um, But I think as a panel, we've gotten into price only tells you a little bit, it doesn't really tell you what people are paying. Um, it doesn't tell you what the costs are. And I actually do think we've done a pretty good job of looking at other costs beyond just the price. You know, what is actually going into education versus who's paying for it. Um, but I think that just in terms of what people want to hear about, price is always something that's kind of first in their mind. So I we titled it, why is college so pricey? You could say, why does it cost so much? And price and costs are actually different things. It's interesting to say how much of costs actually covered by price. Um, but it may have just been a framing issue. Yeah, well, it could be tuition, could be tuition fees, room and board. I mean, we could probably do a whole panel on what do we mean by price. Um, but Let's it gets stop. at a lot of these cost issues. And just to frame it mainly in a title, I couldn't say what is everything that goes in the cost of college, because that's not as catchy as, <laughs> why, is it, why is the price so high?
1: See, now, now Neil's thinking like a headline writer. All right. Uh, let's go to the gentleman in the tan suit right there. the, glasses, the gray hair? Yes. Yes. I think it's a tan
5: suit, right? It looks tan. I'm John Alcorn from Trinity College in Connecticut. Um, I have a question for Professor Delisle. Uh, you mentioned the importance of the return to the investment in education, value uh, compared to the st- price, whatever, whatever we define the price <laughs> to be. Uh, Brian Kaplan's book, um, The Case Against Education, um, argues that uh, economists generally overestimate the return to investment because they don't take into account uh, the fact that scarcely half of the students who attempt, say, a four-year degree complete it. So they're fairly low, they're high attrition rates, low completion rates, so how would that complicate your thinking. And, and I'd also like to seize, seize the chance to mention that it's an embarrassment of riches in terms of uh, fine studies, uh, social science work on higher ed, because uh, just this week, uh, Alex T- Tabarrok and Eric Helland have a new book out, Why Are the Prices So Damn High? And a chunk of it is about higher ed. They think it's mainly the Baumol effect, but anyway. My question is about uh, the rate of return on, yeah. on, on investment. Yeah. Half the students don't, uh, don't achieve the credential. Sure. I should
3: say, though, uh, d- 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 uh, Doug was shifting in his seat when you, when you called me professor. I'm not, I'm not a professor. <laughs> Doug is a professor, so... <laughs> <laughs> just no, 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 no. I won't get I the question. <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, no, so on, on, the, on the returns thing, you know, on measuring it based on you know, the, the people who don't complete, right? Because there are, I mean, that's a, a huge chunk of people who, who sort of try this out, right? We have this big open access higher ed system and people kind of come in and we have a low completion rate um, and I, I think that you should take that into account um, and I think that our measures of return on investment should include that and I think our accountability measures mm-hmm. should include that um, we you know one interesting thing though I think what happens is it becomes it becomes a measurement problem um, I think it, it's hard to measure. Um, you know the non non completers. It's hard to measure the outcomes. You've seen this in some of the accountability conversations, like the Obama administration's Gainful Employment rule, um, that that was mainly targeted at for-profit colleges. Uh, it looked at how much the students earned and how much they borrowed, but it only looked at completers um, because it, it I, you know my sense is that they weren't sure what signal they were measuring when they were adding in the non completers, or it's also hard to figure out. Where does a non-completer go? Um, when do we decide they haven't finished, right? Maybe they stopped out for a year or two or five, right? Um, uh, same thing, you're seeing this exact same thing uh, just recently where the, um, the Trump administration, the Department, the Department of Education, uh, is releasing more uh, student loan data, right? Student loans by, by um, program level at, at all institutions. Um, but they are only releasing the loan data of the completers, not the non-completers. Right, um, and so I don't know, um, Doug. Maybe you have you have more thoughts on this because, it, and my sense is there's just this sort of challenge in trying to figure out how you're measuring that and what you're measuring when, when you put out that information.
2: So I want to say I completely agree with you and with uh, with Dr. Kaplan's uh, criticism. Um, if you, uh, I'll plug my own work here. So um, so there's it's absolutely right that most people you know your're your uh, most economists when they do these calculations you know they they you know, look at the people who complete and you know w- what i've written before is that you know that's almost like looking at um, you know looking at someone who won the lottery and then coming to the conclusion well look this person you know won ten million dollars therefore I should play the lottery because you're only looking at the winner and not all the losers uh, but if you um, There's a a paper of mine in the so you you mentioned you're at a a university. If you have the Economics of Education Review, I have a paper in 2016 called "Are College Costs Worth It," Um, where I try to do those calculations. um, You know. Uh, accounting for, you know, the uncertainty around completion and you're right it takes, you know, it it brings things down to earth at a level that, you know, it's still worth it. It the, you know, on average it's it's worth the investment, but so much of the college investment decision it I don't think it should be framed around the college premium. It should be framed around risk. um and for people who you know don't understandably have access to the the uh, you know academic journals, if you there's a report I put out for Third Way. If you just Google Weber and Third Way, I'm sure it'll be the first thing that comes up. Where I you know kind of you know go through and say, well, look, you know this it's really a risk thing that you know we we want to be thinking about rather than you know what does the average person get? Um, that's not actually that helpful. We know it's it's on the, you know, for the average person who graduates, we know college pays off, but how many people you know what's the probability that's going pay that it's going to pay off especially what's the probability when you factor in things like non-completion and there it still is greater than 50% but it depends a lot on major it depends on how much you take out um, in, in earnings and I think it's a much more I, I think that type of nuance it's starting to come into the conversation but I think it's where it needs to go as we move forward toward things like what Jason said about you know the you know, looking at college as a as a you know a value value versus cost proposition.
0: Can I, I just say that I, I always have some reservation about the use of all this data. I don't, I don't mind necessarily a lot of it being put out, but it does become pretty risky once we start to say, well, we're gonna use this as a cutoff for certain institutions. For one thing, I do think that we we, in the higher ed discussion, there's almost never any talk about Assessing the students, should the students, was it wise for the federal government to give people money to pay for college? And then we tend to blame the institutions if they don't do well without really assessing who the students are they're working with. Uh, There's been some effort to that, but it rarely seems to become part of the conversation. We like to blame institutions, and that concerns me. And I do think there's a limit to what we can say. It's not that easy. Uh, to control for everything that goes into a student to say whether it's the school's fault or the student's fault. There are lots of observable things you could look at, GPA, test scores, things like that. It gets a lot harder when you want to look at things that are hard to observe, like motivation. So I would just say as sort of um, uh, a note of concern is that any system that government would put in to say we're going to do a cost-benefit analysis of how much money do you make relative to how much you paid for this, and we're going to kick institutions out could be problematic. I really think politically it'll be abused more than just the data won't be good enough to say what we say it says. Um, but it is, I think we do have to recognize how difficult it is to control for things like motivation and you gotta get a lot of variables in there for those students. More broadly, I do think we need to talk more about should, if the federal government's gonna be involved in student aid, which I don't think they should for lots of reasons, but. Should there be more assessment of the students' demonstrated uh, potential to succeed in a program than to just say some programs don't do well, so we cut them off?
1: Great. Uh, Let's go over here, this gentleman right here, and then I'll come back to Greg.
6: Thank you. Thank you very much for a very interesting discussion. My name is Nadig Seferian. I'm a PhD student at uh, the School of Public and International <coughs> Affairs at Virginia Tech. I would like to bring up the issue of psychology and culture again, if nobody minds. I know this isn't, these aren't hard numbers, but still, if I could share my personal experience. I'm a foreign student, and I attended a small private liberal arts college. It's St. John's College, which is this unique Institution where you read the great books for four years and it 's just this wonderful wonderful education that I received for which I'm deeply grateful. but you know it costs what forty, fifty thousand a year, and when I came to this country to study, I thought I was going to be surrounded by millionaires or the children of millionaires <laughs> but no come to find out everybody takes out a whole mess of money to get this unique education and that is what motivates them and the people who run that institution i don 't know. I don't want to underestimate <laughs> that but I, I think that they think of themselves as a business very low on the list and I think the students who attend think of it as a business very low on the list. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I I'm wonder how that dynamic, how there can be a cultural shift in that dynamic. now. A happy quota to the story is this year, I think, or perhaps last year, the university did reduce its sticker price down to 35000 which is, again, a big amount of money. But that whole sleight of hand where we're going to give you 20000 as institutional aid is no longer in play. But I wonder if there can be a psychological and cultural shift both among students and among institutions that, you know what, we value what we do. Maybe we can be more efficient, but let's just be honest with each other about how these things work, and maybe the numbers will somehow work out.
3: Well, I mean, I, I would just say that you know I mentioned uh, earlier that there's been this sort of paradigm shift where we're, we're now focused on earnings, because um, we can be. And that's sort of almost taken as a given in the policy conversations that we should look at earnings. Um, And, you know, I think a lot of this started under the Obama administration, under their gainful employment regulation, because it used earnings. It was actually the first time a a federal higher ed accountability measure used earnings. Um, In the past, we've just used, we've used debt default. Um, And, uh, but I actually think, I don't think we, I I think there's going to be, I think we're going to come, you know, I think we're going to do a 180, right? I think we're going to get some blowback on this whole earnings thing. Um, and I, I, I sort of got. I, I thought I got a hint of it in what you were saying with the institution. of someplace like a St. John's would probably push back pretty hard on on measuring the earnings of their of their graduates as some sort of measure of success. Um, so, so I think you know I I don't know what that quite looks like yet, but I think that there there is going to be this sort of pushback. I'm, I'm already seeing it a little bit uh, from my friends on the left who are, who are worried that we're going to start looking at earnings of community colleges graduates. Um, and they very much so don't want that to happen. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I do think that that I'm waiting to see what that looks like, I guess what I'm saying. But I do think it's out there. Um, and I, I think it could it could sort of upend this sort of shift to focus on earnings.
0: Yeah, and I think that's an important point, actually. I may have looked like I said, yeah, we want colleges to act like businesses. I do want colleges to try and be efficient, but I don't think we necessarily want colleges to act like they are businesses because a place like St. John's, um, lots of religious colleges, we want them to be financially sound, um, but we don't want them saying, well, how can we maximize profit regardless of whether or not we're producing you know, the product that we're we're providing. Just because I want something in a free market, I really just mean freedom by that. And I want institutions to value whatever it is they want to value and for them to attract students who value the same thing. The difficulty for me, the real problem is, if they value it with someone else's money, then it's sort of a distorted valuation of, well, you know, I kind of like, I'd like a great book's education, but only if somebody else is helping me to pay for it. But I don't think we want just every institution acting like uh, a corporation that's just trying to make money. We want lots of different models of schools to be able to exist.
1: Okay, let's go to Greg last, uh, and then we, gotta, then we gotta wrap up because I can tell you all really wanna get to the reception.
7: I hate being the person between the reception and the end of the program. Uh, I'm Greg Shuckman from the University of Central Florida and and Dr. Weber, I'm also uh, a doctoral student in higher education administration at the University of Florida, so. Ah, go Gators. Go Gators. (laughs) Um, Since you talked about Bowen, and by the way, I wish this uh, program was held a couple months ago during my quals, it would have really helped me. Um, But Bowen's revenue theory of cost, which was one of my questions, Um, was published in 1980, right? And it was three years before the first US News and World Report ranking. And Bowen um, made the point about the dominant goal of an institution being educational excellence, prestige, and influence. US News comes in, fills the void, and suddenly it's all about inputs, and it's all about how we measure inputs, and it becomes a proxy for quality. And what you were talking about earlier um, about measuring and really looking at value, I think is, is, is key. And looking at those, those outputs that are going to matter and looking at how do we measure the value of the higher education, not how much we spent producing the higher education, but what did you get out? What were the societal benefits as well as the individual benefits that public good versus private gain? So, there was a value commission that was announced a couple of weeks ago by the Gates Commission and uh, the head of the Gates uh, Foundation and you I guess, are co-chairing, and it was an all-star lineup, and I'm really curious to know what you think about what they should be looking at in terms of trying to identify what value means in terms of higher education.
2: So, I mean, value is really difficult to to really define and one of the problems is, is that, you know, what, when, um, you know, when economists are asked to do something, you know, they say, oh, well, it, it is what we can measure. Um, and, you know, in K-12 that turns out to be test scores um, in, you know, now as Jason is, you know, has as, as mentioned, you know, now that we can measure earnings, it's going to be earnings. Um, if like, just coming at it from, and that's what it's going to be. Like it's, you know, it's going to be heavily focused on earnings and getting better measures of that. And we are getting a lot better measures of it. But one of the things is it's it's really even hard to measure, um, even when you're just looking at at money, because then. Um, you know how do you how do you value all the costs that are going in um sometimes uh, as as uh, one gentleman had mentioned earlier like there's there's you know there's a difference between explicit subsidies and implicit subsidies, and you know the implicit subsidies being things like tax breaks and sometimes you know you, well how how much uh how do we count all those up sometimes it's sometimes surprisingly hard to find all of the um you know all of the the implicit uh, subsidies that places are getting. Uh, And then um, value. Well, are we measuring value from um, an individual person's standpoint or from a taxpayer return standpoint? Uh, I guess my point is even defining value in a really narrow sense in terms of like earnings and dollars and cents and return on investment, it's not even clear how you do that. Um, and so, um, yeah, I don't know if you have more thoughts.
3: No, I mean, I I think that's the, you know, and this is, this is sort of where I kind of line up with, with Neil on this is, I mean, for all the, my, my talk about the, the government making earnings information available and making more price information available, I, I sort of draw a line at, you know, well, should the government start deciding what's a Worthwhile degree and how much you should pay and what you should need to earn. I don't like. I'm with Neil. I don't. I like. There's no way they're going to get that right. <laughs> um, so, but, I, but I'm I do trying. Think, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> but I, but I do think well, will see. What's What's interesting though is that I. I mean, I do think that that you know, the, the federal government is sort of u- in a unique situation though to to collect the data and make it available in a in a sort of U.S. census kind of way. Um, that you know that you know a. a a university actually really can't know what its students go on to earn. I mean, in a, in, a, in a good way, right? They can know what they charge them. They can know who they bring in. It's really hard for them to say, oh, the median earnings of our students who got social work degrees is X. Like, they they, they could survey them, but it's going to be I terrible. I will say, data. the
1: University of Texas now uh, does Church. this extensively. That's right. <laughs> And, and if you want to see a fascinating uh, well, they don't of this. they
3: don't do it, right? The Census Bureau does yeah. it. No, the BLS, I, I believe the the, the so state labor the, system. That's right. So so the federal so it's Census. So te- the Texas, the UT system yeah. dashboard. Yes. It's the U.S. Census Bureau data. So yes. it's the federal government collecting the data. And, and Colorado, state, Colorado and state
1: unemployment insurance data, state state yeah.
2: labor data. In, in other in other places. yeah, that's yeah. right. Other states have added it now. Colorado yeah. and there's a bunch that are coming on. Right, the and lines. so the,
3: so the colleges don't you know they don't have the actual data. So I mean I, I I'm I feel like so there's a government role there, but. I would say, not necessarily. It's going to be really difficult to sort of like try to pick the line, but then let you know, let all these other third-party entities, let the market sort of figure out. You use a different measure, you can use a different measure, and people can make their decisions based on it, and the schools can make their decisions based on it. Because the
2: free market has worked so well with higher education so far. <laughs> well, Neil says let it's not, not a free market. Higher,
0: <laughs> the free market do some work in higher right. education, but I do think you mentioned K twelve, and K twelve is a great example of how this goes wrong because we did obsess over test scores eventually what you got was sort of a political revolt against reducing education to test scores but there's been increasing recent research so I, there's not a great body of research but that, that's starting to show that the test scores aren't actually all that great a predictor of other things we want like uh good labor outcomes or good health and things like that. So we picked this one measure because it was easy to do. And I think a lot of people assumed, well, this is going to tell us what we want to know about the educational outcomes. And increasingly, it looks like it wasn't even telling us what we thought it was telling us, much less whether or not those were things that, you know, a whole lot of people valued or maybe they valued some other stuff more. The test scores may have been kind of hollow in what they're telling us.
1: All right, so we gotta wrap up. Uh, if you're going to the reception, you can, and I apologize if I didn't get to your question, you can grab one of these folks up there and, and, uh, and press them on that issue. I have to announce that the reception will be held on the second level in the George M. Yeager Conference Center up the spiral staircase. Restrooms are on the second floor. Uh, on your way, uh, you can look for the yellow wall appropriately, I guess. so I'll,
0: I'll just add, feel free to look at the art so you can Oh, the right art's art spectacular, again. yes. And there's actually art downstairs too, so if you want to go look at that, that's fine. And also, shameless plug, this is available outside in the hallway, but really look at the art first. All right,
1: thanks everybody for joining us.